How do rugby players negotiate a new contract? Kev talks about almost losing his career at 22, and Raj tells some harrowing tales of playing in New Zealand. It's all coming up on The Hard Yards. The Hard Yards, brought to you by Ladbrokes. Passionate about sport. Two and Ringrose comes through. Oh. And he's brilliant from Ringrose. Ringrose is going here. What a score. I know what website you use most often, but <laughs> it's a sister of uh, YouTube. <laughs> Hi Rob, Zeebs here. Just want to discuss the captaincy next year. He's calling. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field, not you. I say YouTube is probably YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Hard Yards, the Sports Joe Rugby podcast. I'm Andy McGeady. Welcome here to Ronan O'Gara, Kevin McLaughlin and Pat McCarry. Later on, we'll talk to Andy Rowe about New Zealand's preparation for the Lions and get odds for the weekend's Pro 12 action from Haley O'Connor of Ladbrokes. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time, subscribe to it on iTunes, Podcast Republic, SoundCloud and every good podcast app to get it straight to your phone. First off... The Rugby Players Ireland Award nominations were announced this week and Gary Ringrose, Darren Sweetnam and Joey Carberry are up for Young Player of the Year. Gary Ringrose has been tipped for greatness for a while now, but I wanted to ask you lads about the best young players that you played with. So, Kev, to you first. Who were the stars when you were playing at that underage level? Yeah, I uh, was lucky enough at school level to play with Trimby. Um, he was a bit skinnier and wiry at that point, but like he just had a different level of class and was very very strong and fast uh, for a guy his age and made a lot of line breaks and just was clearly the best player on our school's okay, team so at that a- stage Andrew Trimble is the one that comes first to mind for you yeah, yeah and then Fez I played with Stephen Ferris uh, at under 21s and I remember uh, at our under 21s World Cup we were playing in South Africa and he got the ball on the 22 and like ran the length of the pitch he was doing things like that at that age and again super strong and super fast uh, for his age Um <laughs> there's another guy that comes to mind a guy called Vinnie Goff who is now one of Ireland's premier bodybuilders <laughs> maybe not the most skillful player I've ever had the pleasure of, of taking a pitch with but he uh, was an absolute beast at that age and it was just a case of getting the ball to him it was a really soft pass so he could catch it and then just letting him take off and he just ran around fellas ran over the top of fellas and scored loads and loads of tries but I think at that age like if you're fast and you were strong and you were more physically developed uh you got to the top a lot quicker and I don't know p- perhaps there was too much emphasis on that at that age I'm not sure it's the case in other countries but that seemed to be the case with the guys who maybe pushed on and got into the weights room a little bit earlier probably had a bit of an advantage over, over the other guys Raj anyone scream out for you now when no I was struggling there when Kev said it I was trying to it's a long time ago go back to Irish schools Irish 21s and I just remember we had a, good, a really good team um I remember who stood out under 8, under 10 and under 12 in Cork on. There was one name that just jumps at me straight away. It was just get the ball to Jeff Casey. Yeah. As Kev said, he was just, he was like um, Lomo playing in white. <laughs> and at that stage, it's just a case of <laughs> no one can tackle him. So he was a complete freak. And schools rugby, there was uh, a number nine kind of, he seems like a French number nine, Eddie Hogan O'Connell. He was the kicker. Um, and he was uh, probably our best player, I would think. Yeah, French nine. You mean the the playmaker from nine as and opposed kicking. to ten? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, as I said, I think anyone who's physically more developed at that age has a big dif- a big advantage. But even when you get to sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, do we still put too much of an emphasis on on just strength as opposed to skill? When you think the the maturation path of an Irish male. 
Potentially. <clears throat> I think it's the way the game's gone to a certain extent. And I know like the likes of Leinster and Munster and are going around to the schools at a young age now and getting guys on weights programmes, 15 and 16. Maybe they should be putting just as much emphasis on getting them on skills programmes. Um, just to make sure they can cope because that's definitely the gap we have with like a, a country like New Zealand where they have obviously the power and strength but they don't put as much emphasis on it they seem to put more emphasis on skills so um, yeah I'm not sure that we're putting the emphasis in the right place in terms of development of players but like you have to be physically developed to be able to cope and the thing is when I came into the academy <coughs> I remember doing my very first senior session and I'd been playing around with weights for a couple of years at that stage it was a semi-formal sub-academy programme but I remember I went to this tackling drill with Mal O'Kelly and I was looking at him and he was whatever, six foot eight, hundred and twenty-five kilos. I was maybe about 104, 105, most of his body fat and pimply and <laughs> I saw him coming at me and I actually pretty much ducked out of his way. I was like, I physically can't tackle this guy. I'm not big and strong enough. Whereas then when I got into the senior squad and a guy's like Reese coming out of the academy. <laughs> he was 112 kilos he was already heavier than me he was already bench pressing twice as much as I was and they're bringing guys through now like who are 18, 19 ready to play at senior rugby which was not the case when I was coming through um, and it's I think it's changed a lot and it means guys can make that transition like I think Gary Ringrose can play international rugby now because he started his development programme in Black Rock probably when he was about 13 or 14 um, and he's ready now to compete and like he's not the biggest centre in the world but like he, he doesn't shirk from from the physical work so um, it definitely has benefits Is it a coincidence then that like the likes of someone like Reese, like he was like, you know earmarked as a, the next big great talent capped for Ireland when he's around 20 has picked up a lot of injuries you know like early in his career and someone like Ulton Delan as well who's just another big physical specimen massive as well put on those kind of early weights programs and stuff that he's picking up injuries early in his career do you reckon that's a coincidence or is it just you know, yeah. hand in hand, I suppose. I think Reese isn't a brilliant example because he's just one of those genetic freaks. He like came into the academy. I think he was, I think he was like eighty five, eighty six kilos, and he put on like twenty kilos in two years or something like that. Like he's freak. Like he looks at a weight and he gets bigger. Like we call him <laughs> man child. Yeah. Because like he looked like a man at the age of nineteen. Um, and you're the opposite, right, aren't you? <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> I was thinking that he got to South Africa for a stint. <laughs> I'd say you looked at a lot of weights, right, Raj? No, he was trying really hard. At it. Yeah, honestly, it's genuine. I've said, Kev said it's it's all to do with genetics. Yeah. It's got to do with hours on the field as well. Every time I used kick after training, so the capacity to keep on weight was very limited. You couldn't. Yeah. And as I slag a lot of the lads, I said Monster usually were playing into into uh, deep into May because we were usually contesting medals. So. Uh, Connacht were on holidays for six months before that so they could all go to the gym Jesus Maul enjoyed that one yeah. <laughs> I think what's it Kev you played with um, Garrett Steenson as well and, and he w- would have kept Sexton out of the, the under 21s team at the time wouldn't he like he was a guy he was uh, earmarked as someone as well as someone to make it correct yeah and Rog talks about genetics like Johnny uh, wasn't genetically blessed in the gym either and he wasn't physically developed like when we I remember that tour to Argentina like he was very very slight and like <laughs> looked young and immature he was like obviously had a huge amount of class about him but Stino was starting for us because he 
didn't miss a kick mm. and like uh, he'd played in the previous years I think he played on he the, had the went before, to the final yeah. Yeah. so like obviously Johnny was finding an uphill battle there uh, but yeah that, that was interesting that Johnny was there and, and didn't start the games but like Steen like I, I think to be honest to be an out half like you look at the world's best out halves like one of them sitting here beside me like he wasn't like you don't need to be physically developed really like you need to be spending your hours like That's crafting your game the one point that triggers um, what you said earlier I think the biggest advance we can make in this country I think is numbers 1 to 5 in, in their capacity to handle the ball and what you said triggers it off I think that's where New Zealand are far better than any other team 1, 2 and 3 4, 5 their capacity to attack the line with their hips square and actually pass correctly you, it, it's it's a major major struggle we can get the ball there but like it's everything turns towards the passer which makes the defence capacity to slip off so much easier the the All Blacks 1-5 to five are brilliant at engaging the defence and giving the ball at the right time we do not have that skill set as Kev said you, practicing the skills is one thing but in what environment are you practicing it I think to get the best out of that you need to be mixing up um, forwards and backs doing the skill sessions if you forwards doing skill levels you'll only cer- I think re- arrive at a certain level all the time but, the, but that environment where you're really creating match scenarios to improve the skills is an area that we can make huge advancements in but the other side of it is too during a, during a match week where do you find the time because it's all about performing in the game But So did you feel when you were in the gym on a big match week you're wasting your time? No sorry I absolutely um, it was crucial Kev I think um, I put massive um, trust in the strength and conditioner coach and I always had a great um, bond with them and obviously poor old Darbs isn't with us anymore but like it was something like that where he was I just love a guy that's open for a a 6am session so you get in and kind of get the work done Mm -hmm. and then you get the endorphin release you're feeling good about the day you can concentrate in rugby or if you wanted to do it in between sessions he was always available nothing was an issue with the strength and conditioning coaches we had in Munster or Ireland, I remember, um, you know what I mean, because you play a hundred times for Ireland, you think uh, you're the boss, whatever. I arrived and I met Geo late in my career and he was brilliant because he just kind of said, like, who is this guy about me? And I'm, I arrived at 3.29 with a, uh, an FW, a flat white in the hand, <laughs> ready to go. He marched me around and said, get back in, you're not ready to train, go away, you loser. That was it, that was the tone set. And I think that's exactly what you need to have, just... Yeah. Did I hate him at the time? Yes, but like within um, forty minutes, the rules were established. I thought mm. I was kind of in control, but as you uh, as you know, they need to be the ones setting the tone. Next day, completely, you look at yourself that night, going, "What are you doing?" He's completely right. Come back, and I just uh, I just think that they have such an important role in 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 any team. The uh, the con- the self confidence, the strength and conditioners give you, and and. I think in this country we've worked with some great ones. Yeah, but in terms of priorities, like sculpting the guns should be at the bottom, like as in. <coughs> yeah, well, exactly. That's it. And but he'll say to you, you don't need to do that because if you, you know, what I mean, if you're doing chins, that works the the guns, doesn't it? But like obviously, you have the guys that are. No, but I mean in general, just spending time in the gym has got to be bottom priority. But I'm not sure it always is. As in, for a lot of rugby <laughs> oh, yeah. players today, the hour at eight a.m. in the gym is the most important hour of the day. And then the rugby is kind of a follow-on. And like Leinster did a lot of things where they're flipping around and making sure they did weights after the pitch. So everyone's mm. emphasis and energy and focus was on the pitch session. 
and then the gym was an add-on but then you had the S&C guys kind of kicking up but it's a hard balance to no, get No but you're right but then I think then, Kev what buries that argument then is sorry in terms of what's important is, is what the rugby coaches are are analysing every day in the video going lads if he passed the ball like that there's no way this team can um, go forward because that was I well obviously when I was playing against Leinster you, I can remember Joe Schmidt saying like that Leinster do, can't match the physicality of Claremont um, but we're going to become the, ba- the best passing team in Europe and it's a big thing to say but to actually do it is another thing and they actually were a really good passing team because you look at all the reasons why movements are stopped nowadays the capacity of people to put the ball in front of, of, mm. of his um, teammate is very limited Every it's one out of three are hitting shoulders hitting knees and it's as you said, it's it's you you're, you get away with it in the Pro 12, no bother. But come semi-final time, it, the rules change and and skill levels are let down under pressure because the heart rate has gone another ten beats faster. Mm. We'll move on to the topic of player contracts. Uh, so in the last little while, Worcester have announced that eighteen players will leave the club. Leinster, of course, announced they're re-signing thirteen players. Uh, Super rugby situation is a. I suppose uncertain um, mm. franchise is leaving the market is a bit of a mess it's an uncertain time Kev as a player what's this time of year like? Yeah it's hard it depends where you're at in your career I had very very different experiences uh, over the number of negotiations I did uh, I remember back in 2008 I was I had done uh, at this point I had probably done about so at the start of May I would probably done about three formal job interviews to get out of rugby uh, it was Michael Check his first year. Um, he'd brought in a number six that went by the name of Cameron Jowett, um, <laughs> who was <laughs> quite laughable when I look back. Like he was quite a lazy individual, but like Checks really liked him. Yeah, and, good, uh, good hair, I remember. Great hair. Mike Brewer liked him. He got a really famous intercept against Toulouse and did a couple of things like that. But like I knew I was a better player. I'd be, but I'd been struggling with confidence. I'd had Checks in my face screaming at me, testing me all the time. I'd struggled a little bit with injuries and I think Czechs had decided it was a bit of a waste of time. So, so we're getting into May. You don't know what you're doing next season. I I am like 90% sure I'm not playing rugby anymore. I couldn't get a contract anywhere because I hadn't been in the shop window. At I, what, tw- 22 years old? At, yeah, around 22. Like I couldn't I couldn't even get a, like a, a club in the championship. That's how yeah. dire things were. I Actually, it gets worse. I'd done an interview with Anglo-Irish Bank. Two <laughs> interviews with them, in fact. This is like six months before they're about to go bust. So like, <laughs> I could not have got my timing better. <laughs> and then, uh, so then I, what happened was, uh, I got on the bench against Edinburgh. He, uh, check sent over the whipping boys for that particular game because we were playing, I think like the final, the semi-final the following week. And I got on the bench for that game and Cam went down after about 45 minutes. He had a bit of a stinker. I came on, played well. We turned the game around and won. And Checks pulled me into his office the next day and said, uh, in fairness to him, he, was not, he didn't shy away from the big decisions. He was like, we're, we're going to bring you on next year, give you a two-year contract. And then the following day, I found out that Cam was getting chopped. Like, so that's how ruthless it is. And the fact is, Checks wanted to keep his options open, and that's what coaches do. Mm. They, they want to figure out who they can sign, who, who they can bring in, what the optimal mix of their squad is. I think like Arup has done a lot of really good work in terms of making sure that players are informed at an earlier stage so they have a bit of certainty for what they're going to be doing the following season but it's really hard because like 
for me at that stage rugby defined me like when my mates called me up they were like how's rugby going you're a rugby player and to your mates and your family like you're a rugby hero even though like you're just playing for UCD and you're not like actually really doing anything in your career but then I was like what am I going to do next go into a bank like I really have any interest in that now like I love rugby but then one man as in Michael Checker can decide your fate so I knew I had the talent and I eventually got there to, to have a decent career with Leinster but like it, it's really really hard time like so it's a, like for you. it's yeah. a great story because it's I think that's exactly being a professional rugby player usually when you're at your lowest ebb something breaks and I hope people remember that because it's the game that pushes you to, to its limit and as you can see with Cave like it's after the career after that what happened it's fascinating you just gotta sometimes when everything is against you you gotta hang in there you gotta hang in there and you, the only person that can fully convince you of doing that is yourself you have to take advice obviously from a, a lot of people and get a close circle of friends that you can trust and that will give you that but like Kev knew he was capable of getting there but he, by God was he pushed you know and I think that's what happens so much in this game because in, in Ireland it's difficult because it's um it's so competitive from a coaching point of view he, he he's nailed it like in fairness to Cheka he had the, the the decency the following morning I'd say that was the last thing he expected he was probably happy with his game but to kind of come in and get out you're getting a two year as you can say it's just a massive relief all in one word or sorry one statement from the head coach going yeah you're here for two years and we're ha really happy you're just like what it's like it's, it's a life changing though, event one person can like no, determine but I, yeah. your fate in such a like yeah. on no, a whim he, really well like, sorry well I think he's the the man given the message but you'd like to think that behind that there was probably forwards coach mm, head coach with checks probably not checker, but like yeah. the fact is he's riding down his 39th and 40th player for the following season yeah. And on that hinges your entire. Yeah, I know, like but <laughs> you're you're looking at it a bit differently. But he probably has, you know, what I mean the reality is in that regard. That's one way. But he's saying, well, my number sixes are. So this is with your coach's hat on, right? Yeah. This and this. Um, I'm just trying to think of it with every hat on. Yeah. Any um, examples of players in Munster that went through anything similar or like? That's oh, always honestly. There's a lot more. Like to Billy Holland, I'm sure has had a lot of ups and downs, and like he's come through now. It's like exactly. Um, What's that like for the squad, though? So this, because that's your personal situation, but the people around you must be feeling. I that think as well. it's it's. Yeah, I mean the markets in different countries are very different. I don't think there's anyone really doing contracts now for next season. I as Kevin said, it's the real kind of I would say, uh, late fillers in the squad. Mm. A lot of the heavy business is done. Well, I know in France would be done. So, the, like, for two thousand and eighteen now. Um, there's advanced negotiations but the market there is going to completely change with the new regulation coming mm. in with the 18 GIF um, in the system here I don't know because I'm out of it a long time but it, it's um, it, I suppose the most important thing is that um, the market has completely changed there's a lot more options for players in terms of are they all going to stay with the province for for their whole career? I'm not too sure. Well, have you ever had to kind of let somebody know, let's say around the January, February mark, when you're not going to be kept on for next season? Or would you let them know a bit later? Because like, surely their motivation would, would so drop off. I was off. saying to Kev, it's really handy being a number two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you go to the coffee machine and missing when, when that conversation <laughs> takes place. But like, lads, it's, it's, it's part of the business. Mm. You know, I think people don't really get that that they haven't played the game you know what I mean is in 
the best the players want to have the best players around them if they're dead wooden the squad it's got to go mm. and people change like money changes people too it changes their attitude if a fella gets a three year deal okay it, you know what I mean yeah. I could, I don't want to name them but a lot of players really perform well when it's negotiation time it really annoys me then they have a three year deal in the bag and all of a sudden it's kickback mm. that's something that's kind of celebrated in America sometimes isn't it he's playing for his contract and contract, yeah. it, they don't seem to mind that over in America but they've over even here done research in to see is it a real thing or is it just yeah, like within the bounds is. of normal variance but like it's quite like it's, it's a really hard time for players it's incredibly stressful because you're thinking I'm one injury away from so you're negotiating and then you've got them at the negotiating table you've got them at a decent place and then you're thinking I'm playing this weekend if I pick up an injury they've got me now and they can come back and they can do whatever Like, but you know it's like the negotiation can tip their way very very easily it can tip your way so it's it's a stressful time for a player so the I know from a coach's point of view they don't want those negotiations going on because so in the dressing room itself though is, th- is this a topic that you talk about with other players would you would you know what other players in the squad are being paid being paid yeah no um, my generation it was um I was tight with a lot of players but the fellas that I was tight with I would have known but I don't think anyone has um, has um, any certainty on the the figure involved nor should they but like people talk about it and I think they share it with a few people if they're confident of sharing it Um, but that's very much um, I suppose depends on who the person is yeah, it's very like the system in America where, you know, the contracts are published, you know. But you're talking about NFL. And all the major sports. Yeah, but sure, like, we're talking here, it's it's like, this is rugby players, you know what I mean? It's oh, yeah. like max salaries are, you know what I mean, 400,000. Well, here's here's the list that uh, Media Olympique published this week. So the Dan Carter, 1.5 million, Matt Giddo, 700k, 600k, Dwayne Vermeulen, Lee Halfpenny, uh, 500k, then there's a few there. Top French player, they've got two that they are saying. Uh, Reba Slimani has contract 600k and then Louis Piccamol, albeit for Northampton, 600k as well and then a few of them on the half mil mark. So we're talking about decent coin. Um, you're, you're making a crucial error and you're, li- you're listening to Media Olympic. This is, this <laughs> is a fair mean, point. Like, I don't think you should believe what you read in the papers, believe me. It's, but if I go to the effort of reading it in French, Rob... <laughs> <laughs> OK, you can try that, but it's... Uh, like uh, for example Dan is on a great salary but how much is that is earned off the pitch I, that's actually a good point that they make you know yeah. so I think you have to talk accurately to be in fairness to these guys I'd say the Gitto one is inaccurate as well I've a fair idea what, what um, players are players are earning you know yeah. and the Pat from the media point of view it's something that I know would be would be fodder right but even let's say we didn't know what a player was on even to know how long the contracts were up mm. and when they were up would actually be a lot of help yeah like I, I know Leinster kind of stopped the practice of revealing how long a guy was on a contract for they just say he signed a new contract yeah. and they don't let it know so like I don't know like it, it, then it makes you have to ask the players to question each year like are, is your contract up you know when's it coming up and then they give out about the speculation but you're they're giving out the speculation because nothing's been made clear like mm. so you have to ask the question to it like let's say Jamie Heaslip or Dunica Reiner when he was coming up or Tyg Furlong every year is your contract up or what are you going to do like so then it becomes a question again and he has to talk about it so uh, I think Lenser were trying to shut down that side of things but like if you because you could easily do the maths two year contract for him one year for him three year for him and then you'd go alarm go off on your phone oh, here we go start asking the questions around March time or something but um, it wouldn't be that <laughs> that crazy but like they 
they tried to shut it down and by shutting it down they've actually created that kind of vacuum which leads to more speculation. The vacuum will be filled. But l- let's go back to a point on negotiation. So um, Kev, you mentioned that earlier on. How does that process work? Do many players work without agents, for example, or is an agent just part of the furniture for a professional rugby player? Mm-hmm. Some players work without them now, but the, the general way it works is that uh, whoever the manager is, whoever does the negotiations for the club will contact the agent um, and put forward an offer. And where you are in the club, how you're playing, whether you're first choice, etc., will determine when that happens. If you're someone that they really want to keep, it'll happen like September, October time. The negotiations will start. If you're someone that's kind of maybe second choice, but definitely they want to keep around for the following year, it'll maybe start November, December. And then if it's someone that is a little bit up in the air, and potentially might be moving on, it'll be like January, February discussions will start. So it really depends. So what they'll do is they'll close off the really, really important guys and the guys that want to build the squad around in September, October, November. Then they'll move on to the next batch and they'll move on to the next batch. And that's kind of the way it works. They go through the agents generally or whoever is represented by the player. In some cases, uh, the player will just represent themselves. And I've seen that more and more in the last couple of years where guys will just step in and, and do their own negotiations. So it very much varies uh, player to player but like I said it's an incredibly stressful time for players and the clubs understand that um, and they want to just tie it off and I know Arupa brought rules in there where all contracts have to be done and closed up by a certain point point in the year so the players have that certainty which is very very important and would have, would have been nice for me I suppose back in 2009 mm. Roger did you ever, ever have a negotiation <coughs> with Munster that went on that just went on a little too long I was just thinking there um no, because I, you know, you, you might be thinking that um, you're in a really good position, but in my case, I was, I so wanted to play for months that I felt that, um, irrespective of what it was, I felt like I, I'm never going to leave, and that's, it's not a great way of going to go a good deal. No, it's not a strong position. But like, I think you look upon it from the team I played and. It, you're mad to leave you can't leave that a full house every week a cracking atmosphere a cracking team all all your mates it was an, a local team the, the dynamic has changed obviously but um, so how, no, do you, how do you get what, you're, sorry, what you feel you're exactly. worth exactly I think um, in my case it was I had a figure in my head mm. that I was happy and um, where did you get that figure I I would have kind of in fairness I would have talked to Brian O'Driscoll a lot in, in that he was my uh, confidant on that and I, I shared a lot of um, ideas with him and uh, I knew what he was getting so I'd kind of <laughs> I'd, I'd um, put a figure in my head I, I did a negotiation myself I said this is it and as Kev said it was uh, everyone is completely different but um, I only whatever did four deals with the with the, with the mm. union in my time and um, in fairness to them obviously I got looked after So genuine question did anyone ever recommend to you that you should go off and be photographed in, in another place you know be it a yeah. Ritz or somewhere All else All that yeah but I yeah. just felt that's not the way to go uh, Why did you do it yourself the negotiation? Um, because I find it a really interesting um, subject matter I just found that it was um, I wasn't going to leave so if you're not leaving your hand is completely weakened. If you want to play Russian roulette or you want to really test the market, you got to be prepared to go. Mm. 
and that was the advice I was giving younger players because they used to come to me and ask me what to do and I used to tell them I said this is what, how, how you go about it if you want to if you want to uh, get your best deal here you got to be prepared to go because it's a game of cat and mouse with the Munster with the Leinster with the Union mm. but if you want to push them really hard then the consequences are huge because people thinking that is one thing but actually going to an apartment in Beiritz or going to an apartment in Claremont is very different to actually uh, testing the market yeah yeah, it's interesting because technically it's, technically it's not really a negotiation if you don't have another option <laughs> exactly <laughs> so it's actually more you're relying on the fact the RFU are going to value you yeah. and look after you it's and poker. pay you you're, what you're, you're worth yeah and so. that's I think that yeah well that was exactly um you know the case in, in probably Johnny's situation going to, to to Racing he felt that he was undervalued and then in fairness to him he, he committed and he went but there are other players that don't have the balls and con- come squirming back and all of a sudden the agent is now chasing the union or Munster their deal is dead mm. So and it's not a good position because you no. said it's it's the mindset that they'll keep for the next 24 months and I think nowadays look at Saracens and look at the age profile look how well they've done and how much they've nailed it and it's given them another advantage over other teams mm. like the best example is it's not even big news probably Liam Williams going there yeah. but what a signing yeah. they're signing but good it doesn't people, happen yeah. by chance you know you mm. look at I think I was reading is it Farrell is going to be 28 in 2020 Vinopola mm. the same you mean so like yeah they brought through a crop with a similar profile a similar time and importantly they're keeping them happy well more than happy obviously but I think that's that's not financially but I think in the culture that Kevin talks about it's it's crucial and the the negotiations is is fascinating in terms of how it's how it's how it's done but I think sometimes players forget if you perform you get rewarded Mm. And does the head coach sit in the room for those negotiations? Like, would you have been in the room with like the likes of Gaffney and Kidney and stuff like that, or is it just with a Gareth Fitzgerald or something? Yeah, it's no. There's no. Um, never in my time of dealing with a head coach. Yeah, yeah. Philip Brown and Gareth Fitzgerald and myself, and then you get a solicitor maybe to have a look at it. But going back to Rogers' example, I think sometimes Irish players make the mistake of assuming what a French or English team will pay for them. <laughs> is what they need to get from the province because there's value to staying where you are today there's value in playing in an environment you're used to playing in there's value in playing in Ireland because you have a way higher chance of getting on the national team and all that comes with that Mm. there's a lot of value involved in actually staying where you are and playing in an environment you're used to playing in that some players in Ireland have made the mistake of forgetting about I think and there's there's a big premium to that and moving away is not always going to be a success it's a really really high risk move uh, it takes balls but um, in a lot of cases it doesn't prove to actually enhance uh, players career so it depends what's most important to you and, and why are they going is it because they feel that they're 60,000 shy yeah. in their contract here but that's a massive massive risk to take because everything has changed the template he's gone into is nothing like he's used to yeah. like I think the great thing about for the Irish based players they can make that up in a different um, source of income elsewhere but uh, Kev's point is so accurate I think people how the market in France works for example so would be just give the example of um, we'll say brief play on a Saturday okay Um, the president is at the game 
Um, the right winger doesn't have a good game for Breve. He lets in two tries down his side. So the president is fuming mad. Okay, Sunday he's having a look around. Monday, uh, Simon Zebo's agent rings him and says, "Well, Simon's available then to come." All of a sudden, the president that day could have a contract offer rolled out. So it's all about striking at the opportune time, and that's what happens. And that's why I think what um, what is unbalances the market in France. It all depends on on the mood of a president on a certain day, because it, there can be such fluctuations in terms of um, offers that it, it, that's why it's so warped. I mean, that is a key difference with the Irish market. There are a few examples of that in England where you've got the the rich, mm. the single benefactor, the daddy. Um, but no, that is a little bit different. Could could you see more Irish players moving abroad? Again, for for whatever reason, it might be one player at say thirty, thirty one, and just said wants to have this last payday, secure the family, etc., etc. Or do the IRFU have a good enough system in place to keep those younger guys, the guys at twenty two, twenty three, twenty four? You want to keep them to when they're coming through together, twenty seven, twenty eight. Is there enough in Ireland to still keep those guys around? Yeah, I think the latter. I think the RFU have a good system in place, and I think if you look at the examples of people who have left, like there haven't been that many really successful um, sojourns to France, etc. Like like Mads has obviously struggled. He's back to the UK. Mm. Um, Johnny like went okay over in racing, but like he came back and is delighted to be back in Dublin. Um, then you've got uh, obviously Marty Moore who. I think he's playing for a great team in Wasps, but he hasn't put on a green jersey since he went over exactly. there. And I think, yeah, yeah. I think it, it's a real strong statement from the Irish coaches saying this is not just a, a decision about money; it's a decision about how much you value playing for your country. Because we can't compete in terms of sterling and euros with the French and the English markets, but we can compete in other ways. Mm. And uh, no, I, was, I think exactly. But I, I don't. I kind of watch a lot of, but Marty Moore's game hasn't kicked on in any capacity I wouldn't feel in terms of I don't see him he doesn't start for Wasps so like in terms of where he was it must hurt an awful lot and the fact that what he had here he was obviously I think because um, he was ahead of Tyke Verlong in Leinster if you yeah, remember yeah. that exactly <coughs> and possession is nine tenths of the law and he was in control of that hmm. obviously Tyke Verlong would have broken through but as you said uh, you know, I mean, now he's not team, team playing for the team he loves. He's out of the system. He doesn't play for Ireland. He doesn't get to hear the national anthem. It's mm. it's it's a massive void in his life, I would think. And it's a strong statement. Anyone else considering going abroad? You know, well, someone like Simon Zebo. I mean, maybe it's just because of his background. He's linked to France a lot. Could you see the personality that he has going? Yeah, I think he would, yeah, because for him. I think yeah, his father being from Martinique, yeah. and I think it's in his blood. I think he'd he'd like that, and he'd yeah. and, but that would be very much his decision, and that's different. I think that's the key point. I think some people, times people go because they get frustrated that they feel that they're not um, given the contract they deserve here. But I think w- whatever said, I think the IRFU have absolutely nailed it. The, the success stories of people leaving are. There are Jordan Murphy being a different example, but Jordan was was always um, we lost him early. Exactly. Yeah. And I, ever since that, the success stories of the people who came back. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> the Leo Cullens, the yeah. Shane Jennings, who went away, had their grounding, had their schooling, and came back. Yeah. That's I got to see themselves in a different light yeah. because they get challenged in a different way, and I think that's that's what crucial. But like it's um, the model here is really works. What do you think about so just uh, the idea of like a Chris Farrell then like a, a lad who's actually went over 
got got out of his comfort zone at a young age and then was coming back now. It could be like a different way of doing it. Maybe young guys going over testing themselves early on. Yeah, I think they need to play. Is what, yeah, uh, exactly, Pat. I think they need to play, mm. and it's the one disadvantage our system has is there's only four professional teams. Yeah, and that's the one thing we've club. always got a player backlog. So maybe it is you identify them early, send them abroad to get the schooling, get them back. Yeah, but look, or else you recreate the old AIL. Well, that's a, that's a conversation for that's another. another for, that's yeah. for a whole other <laughs> podcast. Um, we'll leave that one there. Uh, up next, a chat about New Zealand's preparation for the Lions uh, Super Rugby and the guys' experiences on tour against the All Blacks. Murder, she wrote, is the perfect thing to watch during the day. You can watch the start, fall off for 40 minutes, come back, see the end, perfect. You know what I mean? You've missed nothing, really. Remember, Rod, Kev in the Kalina used to have to bring two TVs into the room, one for you for Cheltenham. <laughs> like every red-blooded male in the country, he'd be watching the horse racing, whereas I'd have a TV for myself for things like Murder, She Wrote and Houses Under the Hammer. Murder, She Wrote is the perfect thing to watch during the day. The Hard Yards on Sports Joe, backed by Ladbrokes. We're back on the hard yards. We're just under a month away from the Lions tour getting underway in New Zealand. So we wanted to check in with the folks down under to see how they are ahead of the summer's tour. Joining us on the line to chat with all things New Zealand is the host of the Ruby Pod, Andy Rowe. Um, Andy, hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. No, I think it's very appropriate we have someone who isn't Irish talking Lions. So we had a Welsh voice a couple of weeks ago and now we have someone from the host nation. Uh, you guys have a few injuries to some key players in the last few weeks. Yeah, there's, there's been quite a few injuries. Um, we've got you know, Kieran Reid, he's out um, for, the, for the moment. He'll be looking like he'll be back maybe uh, two weeks before the first test. Um, you got Jerome Kano, he's out as well at the moment. Um, he's due back one week before the first test. He's had uh, minor knee surgery. Um, ben Smith, he's rolled his ankle. Um, knee Munoz Scudder's, um, he's, he's been out. Israel Dagg's been out. Um, Dane Coles is also out at the moment. Um, he, he's the real mystery one for, for me at the moment. He hasn't played since about um, mid-March, and he started off, he had a knee injury, and he had a calf tear. Uh, now he's got concussion symptoms, um, but they're not sure where these concussion s- symptoms came from. Um, they're just from uh, over-exercising, so it's a, it's a real it's a real mystery as to you know, the, the Hurricanes have said they've been looking over the, the the footage from training, and they can't work out where he got a head knot. So um, they're not quite sure what's going on there. So his return is is sort of the most um, yeah confusing one of when that would be yeah that doesn't sound a good one I was reading about the 10 colds one myself and it I does s- seem to be very mysterious I saw a clip of that it looked like well somebody I think it was Russ Petty who, who we've talked about before shared a clip of him chasing back to try and stop a Highlanders try and he just cartwheeled in the air and smacked his head off the ground and he hasn't played since that game so I don't know whether they can trace it back to that game but um, he's had two injuries since then and they said it hasn't been since he's taken contact in training Pat, Pat has the scoop from this <laughs> side of the, of the sea yeah it's, it's probably like I suppose you guys might have experienced that as well it's like it's not until you start training hard again that maybe those headaches come back 
Yeah, it's it like it's very subjective. So it, like differs person to person. But for me, when I got those types of symptoms, like what led to me ultimately retiring was I couldn't. It was wasn't a head knock that I needed to get to get symptoms. It was any sort of contact. So mm. I don't know. Hopefully, Dane doesn't have the same thing I had, but. To be perfectly honest with you, that doesn't sound brilliant for him. Mm. Yeah. Um, one one thing now, the both of the guys here in the studio have been down there, and in in previous podcasts and off air, you've talked about the intensity um, of rugby in New Zealand. And even what can the Lions and their fans expect down there? Well, it'll just be the number one thing that everyone is talking about for for months. I mean, it has been the number one thing that everyone's been talking about for the last year already in New Zealand. I've been fortunate enough to be uh, to have gone back to New Zealand a couple of times in the uh, in the last six months, and everyone's talking about the Lions. It's um, every every sports um, page has has something on the Lions. Um, it's always all that focus, of course, because we're we're, we're um, a little bit arrogant when it comes to rugby. I'm not sure if you noticed. Um, <laughs> Shock most admission. Of the, most of the, <laughs> so, um, most most of the uh, most of the sports angles are always on. Will they be ready for the Lions? Will these guys be ready for the Lions? Um, will these guys be back from injury? Uh, but you know, every, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's excited about it. Um, and when the the Lions come to New Zealand, um, you know, it's it's like a World Cup situation because we we only get you every was it twelve years. So um, and for the players and and for the for the team, it's something that they've been building up towards for you know, probably before the last World Cup. Um, they've been you know, blooding new players in. You know, they've got these apprentice programs where they bring players in. And it's all always all geared up for, for the Lions because you know, it's a 12-year cycle. Don't get you that often. It's a massive moment for, um, for an All Black to be able to play against the Lions. You know, you've got some great players that, that have played for the All Blacks have never played against the Lions. So um, it's it's easier to play in a World Cup than it is to get, play against you guys. Raj, playing in New Zealand, when you toured down there, um, did you enjoy it? Uh, it was brilliant from a learning point of view, but at the time, no, I didn't <laughs> enjoy it because it was June, <laughs> it was it was raining, it got dark at four, you got hammered, you got beaten. It was, it was, um, it was really, really difficult, but... Um, it's a fantastic country for exactly it's fascinating to obviously we're all focused on on the goals of the british and irish lions but i think um they're just so passionate about it that you have to go down there and taste it for yourself mm. i think what it means to people and, and andy makes great points about uh, i think that was the motivation for so many of the all blacks too because it was they never wanted to be the first all blacks to lose to ireland we never thought about it like that and I know that Dan is delighted over in, in Paris that he isn't on that <laughs> team and the pr with that comes responsibility and I think there will be huge excitement for uh, the younger players in, in New Zealand with the opportunity they'll get because it will be uh, obviously a massive commercial circus for, the, for this tour as well but I think sometimes you just forget about the raw ingredients involved it'll be two teams 15 going hard at each other and I think that's what they're so good at. Just their when the ball is thrown in, their capacity just to play r rugby and unbroken rugby, and mm. um, it, it'll be all-consuming everywhere they go. It'll be like if you could just imagine in Ireland, like, it would be just everyone that played hurling, football, uh, and rugby just combined together, and and, and 
not alone will it make the sports news it'll be it's the 6-1 leading topic about what the Lions were doing today where were they and then that'll be counterfaced with what the what the All Blacks are doing it's it's a it's a brilliant experience so Kev you found it hard to switch off when you turned down there yeah it's hard it's all encompassing it's all anyone talks about um, for me it was very strange because it was the first time I've ever gone into a series of games um, being told or with the general consensus that we're going to get beaten badly because I come from teams that were used to winning um, and any games I played I'd go into games like with everyone telling us we should be confident and we have a great chance of winning and this was the opposite we did the belief had to kind of come from within and we went close in one of the games there and then we went down to, to Queenstown to kind of try and relax before the last test how to try and get how away how from it all how did that work out? not very well no uh, we got absolutely spanked uh, the following week which wasn't very enjoyable but like it's just relentless like they don't stop the All Blacks they're, they're a different level and they have this kind of relentless attitude in everything they do um, which makes it pretty uncomfortable being there and like Roger said it's cold it's wet it's windy it's dark <laughs> and it's yeah. coming at you from all angles it's, it's, it's a really challenging environment I remember I, li- I lived yeah, I there in. Oh, you want to, Andy? I was, gonna, I was just going to share a, an Auckland memory from when I lived there, and Ireland played them in November after the Lions tour, and uh, just all the talk was like Ireland are going to fight like dogs, but they're going to lose. And I and all the Kiwis that I lived with were just kind of dismissing me, and I was like, Ireland have O'Driscoll, they have O'Gara, they're going to have a good job, and they got beaten forty-five-seven. And I remember reading a match review of it afterwards, and John Hayes's match review was two words: cart horse. And he got a two out of ten. Like it's just they're brutally dismissive if you don't have a good game against them. Andy, you were going to come in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And I think like with the with the press coverage that you get in New Zealand, you think about um, what people don't understand is that sometimes that you know, rugby is a big is a big sport in New Zealand. You get that, but the All Blacks at that point will be the only sports team, the only the only thing in sport and in news in New Zealand at that time. So it's not it's not as though you know I know you, you've got football in, in England and people talk about football a lot, but there's a whole list of English Premier League teams that you can talk about uh, in New Zealand during that time and the months leading up to it. While the Lions are there, the focus is just as you said, it's just so relentless because it's the only sport and it's the only team that we're playing at that time. So you, you just can't escape it. And if you, you can go to Queenstown, you can go to wherever you want. But it's it's everyone in New Zealand will want a piece of the line. Just going back to the injury thing you mentioned, though, Andy. Um, I think like the Kiwis have probably three, or the All Blacks have probably have three or four players in every position that they can throw in without mm-hmm. really seeing a drop in quality. But I I'll throw this back at you. Like for me, the two guys they build a team around are are Kieran Reid and Bowden Barrett, and two guys they can't afford to get injuries to. And obviously, Kieran Reid picking up the, the thumb break, he'll probably be back for the first test, like you say. But if Bowden Barrett were to get a ligament injury in his knee or something like that and be out for the test like that's mm. a huge blow and, and and would you agree that Bowden Barrett and Kieran Reid are the two key guys? Absolutely I think uh, Kieran Reid obviously he's been proven over a, a number of years um, that he he is the guy that keeps the, the pack together he's got a cool head and if you lose him and Jerome Kano um, they're two very very experienced players and you're, you're losing so many test caps there um, but uh, both those players, uh, Grant Fox, the selector for the All Blacks, he said that even without any game time whatsoever, uh, they will play those two if they are ready for that first test. Um, and then you go to you go um, and, and the replacements, the guys underneath um, Kieran Reid and Jerome Kano are, are, are quality players. I mean, you've got 
you've got the likes of Adi Sevilla, Liam Squire, um, Elliot Dixon, but they're not at that, you know, the top of the world like Kieran Reid and Jerome Kano have been for, for quite some time. And then you go to Bowden Barrett, well, yeah, he's just electrifying at the moment, isn't he? I mean, you've got, you do have Aaron Cruden, who's still world-class first five playing underneath him and, and um, Liam uh, Sopoanga, but uh, Bowden Barrett is just, what, what else, what can you say about that guy? He's just, he's just so fast. He's got a, a lethal kicking game. It's almost like if you try and rush him in defence, he'll put a kick over to his wings. If you try and cover the, the chip kicks, he'll just cut you cut straight up the middle. So he's, he, he's the one guy that um, I think would be the biggest loss for the All Blacks because he can, he can do things that no one else can get close to. So we're talking fly halves. I have to I have to bring in Rog to this, Andy. So um Bowden Barrett. Bowden Barrett is good at rugby. Um you watch Super Rugby every week, Rog. What is he? Ah, he's brilliant. Yes. Andy said he's a breath of fresh air. That's exactly it. Teams try and rush him. And the biggest thing uh, that you, when you're sitting on your coach, he looks as a, as composed as, as as you feel, I think. Every picture that's presented in to him, he has a solution. And all the uh, defending teams tried and changed the picture at the last minute. Yet he comes up with the solutions. Um, yeah, he's. Re- I think he's redefined um, the out half position. I think his capacity and his acceleration. It's just you kind of wonder have have the other guys led in their boots. It's it's gone to that stage for his capacity to accelerate and leave people for dead is fascinating. And uh, his attack kicking game is brilliant. Um, but the most important thing is I think the pleasure he takes out of performing every Saturday it's refreshing to see that a guy who is on his way to become you know I mean the best player in the world again perhaps um, but just how how simple and um, easy he makes the game look it's it's completely refreshing nowadays with the amount of robots and meat in the game <laughs> <laughs> the um, Kev we'll go back to something there we were talking about the intensity of New Zealand and the you had an interesting experience with the media down there they picked up an incident in a test with the golden child Richie McCaw and your hand vaguely near his face uh, what was that like for you? Yeah, I thought the guillotine was going to come out at one stage. Um, yeah, it was strange. Like, obviously, he is like the, a bit of a god down there, and I hadn't thought anything of the incident. It was in a mall, and like my hand did go to his face, but I was just trying to rip him out of the mall. Like, there was nothing. I don't think he cared about it, to be honest. But the media picked up on it, and everywhere I looked on on TV, I just saw this slow mo of me with my finger in around his eye area, and people calling for my head. But like, there was nothing internally about it a couple of laughs about it and stuff like that but yeah, it was a bit uncomfortable like mm. <laughs> feeling like the the entire nation's actually coming after you over something and that's that's just like signifies the kind of passion that that follows the game around there and these guys are heroes and they do it they're heroes because they do it every week and because they all stand up and they're very brave in the way they play mm. um, so a huge amount of respect for that did McCall ever have a word after that or was it spoken no. about in the function or anything afterwards? No, it was nothing for him. He's as tough as I came. Oh, he Jesus, yeah. He didn't think anything of it, I don't think. So mm. that's, um, what, that's what's important. Andy, just w- 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 I think we'll finish on this. Uh, for the New Zealand public and the media and maybe the team, what, who's the Lions player that on this tour you guys are fearing the most? Um, for me, I would say it would... Oh, God, there's a, there's a few... Uh, I'd probably say um, Owen Farrell. 
because he's he's got something that the All Blacks don't have, and and, and the All Blacks don't have someone that can um, kick goals like he can, and and he's just he's a completely different player to Bowden Barrett in the respect that the way the way that he's sort of a more traditional England first five, you know, and the Johnny Wilkinson almost ilk, um, and that's that's something that the the All Blacks don't have, and you know, in times gone by. Um, you know, we've had Carter, um, we've had Grant Fox, we've had Andrew Merton, so those those sorts of players. Bowden Barrett is an incredible player, but if if the game is not suited to, um, if if it goes back to the old traditional games, I think a style of play. Um, I think Owen Farrell could be the guy that um, changes things for for the Lions' fortunes in New Zealand. It's an interesting point because I think it's going to be winter rugby and you look at the Super 15 is is incomparable to what the rugby we play over here because there's just absolutely no contest that rocks and they just keep the ball alive and that's why Bowden Barrett tries but you look upon, upon what's going to happen in Eden Park and in, in June it'll be a wet greasy surface I think there'll be an emphasis on field position at certain stages of the game and if the longer the Lions can hang in there and as Andy said it becomes a a traditional game it'll be it'll be fascinating to see who'll win that kick tennis and if they try and um, you know you'd like to think if they try and <laughs> uh, keep ball or contain them but you just know the All Blacks are just going to pull something out and score a try so I think you can have all the plans but I think it's it's a, it's an interesting an interesting topic because there's no way the way the Super 15 is played teams will have that freedom around the breakdown breakdown okay well with a nod to pascal pape everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth so one month until we unleash the dogs of war hopefully in new zealand uh, a big thanks to the host of the rugby pod andy Rowe. up next we chat about ian mckinley's italy call-up this weekend's pro 12 and we'll get some odds from ladbrook's Haley o'connor the hard yards now when the cups are decided you're fine weather but that's probably a two-month period. You have to do the hard yards. Hey, that's the name of the show. Excuse the pun. No, that's perfect. We're <laughs> going to use that now. <laughs> I'm on a bonus for that, definitely. Yeah. Get Jordan, that in. You, the hard yards. The hard yards. On Sports Joe, backed by Ladbrokes. We're back, and we've been joined by Ladbrokes' Haley O'Connor. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Uh, we're going well here. We've um, been discussing player contracts, we've been discussing Lions, and now we move on to more local things. There's a nice story going on this week um, with the call-up of Ian McKinley to the Italian training squad for the June tests. Um, for those who aren't aware of the background here, former Leinster player, former Irish underage international, um, in a freak accident, uh, on-field accident, he lost the sight in one eye, had to go abroad um, and to, to play rugby again with a set of specialist goggles and has then gone through the Italian system and is now in Conor O'Shea's training squad. Uh, Kev, you played with him um, yeah. a, a number of years ago now. Um, it's an amazing story. Yeah, I played with him uh, both in UCD and in Leinster and I couldn't be happier for him. I remember the incident. I wasn't actually playing in the game, but it was for UCD. It was one of his own players. Complete freak accident. Um, lost sight in one of his eyes. And I remember visiting him in a uh, hospital how distraught he was, he was putting on a brave face, he's that type of guy, he's a very quiet, humble, gentle guy, 
um, but someone who had like massive talent in the game and who Leinster were kind of priming um, and at that point all the talk was that he'd never play again and he was getting his head around that was which was extremely mentally challenging for him obviously but he just wouldn't say no he wouldn't give up and uh, he just kept at it he found out a way that he could play using the goggles went over to Italy built his career as a coach and as a player for a club team there um, got a skill back got used to playing obviously with the one eye which mm. has major challenges seeing his peripheral vision is incredibly important for an out half of, of all people and being able to kick the ball and everything like that and bit by bit it just got back to the top of his game and to go from there to getting an international call up um, is just a phenomenal achievement and I, I'm very very proud and happy from the first game I ever captained for Leinster was his first cap actually against Treviso in the RDS and he had a great game we won that day and you know, he's a very, very talented guy, so I'm delighted he's able to actually um, live his dream and play international rugby now. Well, this is the 44-man training squad. It will be cut down to 31, apparently, Italy play against Scotland, Fiji and Australia. So, fingers crossed from this parish that McKinley stays around for that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Um, but Treviso were also part of the one somewhat meaningful game in the Pro 12 <laughs> this weekend. It's a bit of a damn squib, but Treviso and Zibri meet in a shootout to become the Italian representative in next season's Champions Cup, and we'll probably just leave that one there because it's on Eurosport Italia and <laughs> can't really watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are two Irish derbies here, mm. Pat, uh, to talk about. Um, Ulster with a mathematical chance. Yeah, they, they have to win with a bonus point, beat to Leinster in in very very impressive style and they have to hope that um, Ospreys lose then in very very unimpressive style and there's like a 70 point turnaround 70 point swing for yeah. them to get a semi-final spot yeah so um, it's it's a shame like there's uh, normally just it's probably when they made the fixtures they thought this would all lead up considering how last season went and it was mm-hmm. a very exciting finish that you had Leinster away to Ulster and you had Connacht and, and Munster playing against each other that this would be an exciting end to the season but uh, it looks like even from the amount of players that you're seeing who are going to miss out in these games um, you know but I suppose it gives a chance to the young lads like Leinster were absolutely brilliant I thought last weekend like and the young guys had took their chance as well so it gives them a chance the guys from Munster and Leinster to stake a claim for mm. a semi-final starting spot so the as I say that the teams could be a bit of a lottery here depending mm. on um, what the priorities are but what do Ladbrokes have as the odds for this one Hayley? Um, for the Ulster <coughs> excuse me for the Ulster uh, Leinster match at the moment and as you said it's going to be so dependent on the teams that are announced um, we're currently 11 to 8 uh, for an Ulster vict- victory and 8 to 13 for Leinster and the handicap plus 3 but that's could really fluctuate because this type of match you don't know are Leinster going to really try and keep their place at the top of the table or are they going to be sen- you know maybe take a more sensible viewpoint in looking after players um, and then the other thing is uh, Ruan Pinar like is he going to play is are they going to are Ulster going to do like make sure he's got a massive send off so actually pricing a match like this can be a little bit trappy because mm. it's it's not going to be a showstopper and in those matches surprises can happen we'll be struggling for turnover because um, you know th- it's a bit lacklustre this weekend and the fact that both of them are on a quarter past five disaster for bookmakers <laughs> <laughs> um, Munster, for, Munster against Connacht Connacht again it's, it's mathematical stuff at this stage yeah yeah it's like um, it's just yeah Champions Cup kind of playoffs I suppose it's it's just great for them that um, you know Dragons and Edinburgh have been just dreadful as well this season but they they got walloped last weekend so they're kind of playing for pride as well and, and then if they can kind of make it into those playoffs to take a little bit of form in like and mm. um, it's funny to go back like to to somewhere like Tolman Park where they won last year and 
uh, like speaking to Kieran Marmion recently, he has really good memories of like what that meant for their season. They go back there again a season later, and they're just they're playing it's for an outside chance. It's now. a nothing. It's a shame, really. Uh, yeah. But but all those things considered, now what will Albrook see when they peer into the crystal ball for this one as well? <laughs> um, like a, a monster, like like they're basically they're seven to one on, which is uh, unbackable Connacht. They're uh, nine to two, and um, even like reading what the coach was saying. I mean, he was like, oh, you know, I think we've only beaten them once in twenty nine years. Like he's almost there was almost a sense reading some of the articles that he's you know given up on this, um. But it's uh, if you want to back Connacht um plus thirteen points you'll get ten to eleven, um. You know and maybe look to the first try score betting if you kind of want to look for an alternative eight to one, uh, Earls nine to one Zebo and uh, nine to one Sweetenham. Okay, all monster. Um, finally. Player of the Year. So the awards for the Rugby Players Ireland, formerly the artist formerly known as Arupa. <laughs> um, there is Zurich Player of the Year awards. Uh, we have CJ Stander, Tyg Furlong, Connor Murray and Robbie Henshaw are the four candidates for this year's award, the season's award. Who's the favourite? Yeah, the funny, these four, they all started uh, in Chicago and then they, they've all been called up for the Lions. Uh, CJ Stander, he's 5-4 to, four to, he's to keep hold of that title. 2-1 um, to one Tyg Furlong. Um, Connor Murray is eleven to four, and Robbie Henshaw is the outsider at ten to one. Kev, who's your player of the year? It could go to any of them. Uh, I'm not one to sit in the fence. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with the like yeah. I'm going to go with the outsider, Robbie Henshaw. It's good value for money, ten to one. There you go, Pat. Uh, I, I, I would have said Murray and said his injuries have really kind of stopped him. So I'd, I'd say Tyke Furlong just had such an impressive season. I'd be, I'd be happy if he got that. Yeah, and we will note before we sign off that a friend of the podcast, Dunco Callahan, picked up a couple of yeah. Player of the Year awards yeah. at for the Worcester Warriors. So well done, 38 years young. <laughs> Big Dunica keeps trundling on. Uh, we'll wrap it there. Thanks to Raj, to Kev, to Haley, to Pat, Andy Rowe for taking the call, Joe Harrington for producing, and Shane Dempsey for looking after the sound. We'll be back next Thursday with a new podcast. Subscribe to it on iTunes, Podcast Republic, SoundCloud, and every good podcast app to get it straight to your phone. I'm Andy McGeady. This has been The Hard Yards. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. The Hard Yards, brought to you by Ladbrokes. Passionate about sport.